0: We're very familiar normally with listening to a sermon or a devotional and always following that sermon or devotional we we offer an invitation an opportunity to take advantage of either uh, obedience to the gospel initially or through the second law of pardon where John talked about in first John chapter 1 when we make mistakes we ask God to forgive us of those mistakes. Brother Carl has uh, come forward tonight, and he wants to take advantage of uh, the Lord's invitation, which is extended at all times, not just at the end of a sermon or anything like that. But he makes the statement, and, and, and he said to me that he has had opportunities to do good things, and he has not taken advantage of those opportunities. And Carl quoted a passage to me like, he can do, and uh, made that statement that James said that. To him that knoweth to do good, doeth it not. To him it is sin. And so he doesn't want that. He wants to do better. And we appreciate so much Carl, and we appreciate Cindy, and and the good heart that each of them have. And let's go to God in prayer on, on our brother's behalf. Our most holy Father, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy. We're thankful for the privilege of prayer that we have to come before Thee and and uh, offer our petitions and ask for those things that we need in this life, both spiritually and physically, Father. At this time, we ask Thy blessings upon our brother Carl. We ask that those things that uh, he is allowed to come in between Him and Thee, that that You might remove those as he has repented of those and, and forgive him of that. We're thankful for him. We love him. We know that he. Uh, has a has a wonderful heart, that he wants to do good, and we pray that thou would bless him as he continues on in his life, as he works for thee, and as he helps to bless this congregation. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to notice in just a few moments the first four verses of that uh, chapter, that book, Paul's letter to to Timothy, the last letter that uh, he wrote or that he uh, uh, dictated or whatever the case may have been, He, he being the author, the earthly scribe of that letter. We're going to notice that in just a few moments. But before we get to that, let's ask a question. If someone were to come up to you on the street and ask you, what is the most popular book that has ever been written? What book has sold the most copies in the world? Someone might mention, I was not aware of this, but, but maybe someone in, political, in the political science arena or uh, in some form of the literary circles. They might say uh, Mao Tung. He wrote a book uh, or someone wrote a book concerning him and it's called Quotations from the Works of Mao Tung. And do you know that over 820 million copies of that has sold the world over? 820 million. Now, most of us may not be familiar with that book. Some of you may. I wasn't necessarily familiar with it. I was familiar with the name Mao Zedong, but I wasn't familiar with his work. Now, something that probably all of us are familiar with, or at least we have heard of it, might say, well, what about the Harry Potter series? Harry Potter has sold over 400 million copies. Now that's not as much as quotations from a tongue, but that's quite a few copies of a book, isn't it? 400 million. But those aren't the most popular books that have been sold. They're nowhere near the uh, number of copies sold of the Bible. The Bible has sold almost five times as many copies as the quotations from Mao Zedong. The Bible, just in the last 50 years, has sold almost five times as many as that book. And in fact, 3.9 billion copies of the Bible have been sold just in the last 50 years. So I think it would be a fair assessment to say, I think the Bible is probably the most popular book To ever sell. Now at the same time we're thinking of the Bible being a popular book. I don't think that we would be wrong in saying it may be the most hated book that has ever sold at the same time. Someone says, well why? How could that be? Well when you look around at the demographics of the world and you have about 500 million pure atheists or those who claim to be pure atheists in the world, and that's not a huge number, about 7% of the population. 500 million pure atheists, or so they claim, that's a lot of people. And then you look at the 1 billion or so followers of Islam in the world, that's a lot of people. And then you look at the other various kinds of religions in the world that do not hold the Bible up as their code, and so they may not appreciate the teachings taught in the Bible. So I think that if we were to say the Bible is a hated book, I think that would be a fair assumption as well. But why? Why is the Bible a hated book? When we look at what the Bible has in it, I think that we could see some kind of a problem there, right? Notice what Jesus said. He said, And this is the condemnation, John 3, beginning with verse 19, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now Paul made a warning in his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter that he penned, the one that we have as his second letter. He said, but if our gospel be hid, 2 Corinthians 4 beginning with verse 3, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. I think it ought to be a concern to us, and I know it is, that the very book that was delivered so the world could gain salvation is a hated book by many in the world who disagree with it, who don't want to hear it, who aren't interested. Paul, in his defense of the gospel, saying, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1, beginning with verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Uh, to all or to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Though it concerns us, we understand the the Word of God is, is hated. The Word of God is respected in its truest form by a very small minority of people in the world. Even those who claim a love for God and claim a a fellowship with Him who do things contrary to what the Bible says, they don't really have a love for God's Word because they have in some ways changed it to fit what they like. King Ahab told Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles 18, verse 7, he said, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him... For he never prophesied good unto me, but always evil. The same is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Though it does again concern us, we understand the Bible has been hated and ignored from almost the very beginning of time. And we see a perfect example in King Ahab here. So why was it that King Ahab hated Micaiah? Because he spoke the Word of God. Jeremiah was very familiar with that same attitude, Jeremiah five thirty one, he said that the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. We remember Balak, Numbers twenty two. He wanted Balaam to to curse the children of Israel, and, and Balaam, though he wasn't a faithful prophet of God, he still was a prophet. He said, I can't do that. I can only speak what God tells me to speak. Balak did not appreciate that. He didn't like that. Then, of course, we remember Paul asking the Galatians, Am I now your enemy because I tell you the truth? Galatians 4.16 So it's clear that the Word of God is hated by those who refuse to obey it, but why? Why do they hate it? I think there are a lot of answers to that question. There are a lot of reasons that it is hated. Now let's notice what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, beginning with verse 1. He tells the preacher, Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. He said, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come... And I believe this may be the answer to our question. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Why is it that the world hates the Word of God? I've entitled tonight's sermon, The World Hates God's Word Because we're going to talk about the because for just a few moments. Again, I think there are many questions, or rather many answers to that question. The world hates the Word of God. But I think it's based in this idea of they don't like the message. They don't like what they find. They got an answer, but they didn't appreciate it, right? I think first we're going to notice tonight that the world hates God's Word because it displays us for what we are. The Word of God is a discerner and a determiner of the hearts of people. Hebrews 4 verse 12 God has always demonstrated the arrogance of His enemies. He has always displayed their arrogance and the foolishness that comes with that arrogance. Jesus warned, Matthew 24, 35, He said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but what will not? But my words will not pass away. We may not like the message, we may hate the words, but the message isn't going anywhere and the words will never die. Peter continued that teaching when he wrote this. 1 Peter one through 23-25, he said, Describing the... The birth of the Christian, the new birth, being born again. He said, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. What's the seed? Well, last Sunday we talked about the parable of the sower, the seed of God. the, the, The seed is the Word of God. But it's not a corruptible seed like we plant in the ground and we grow crops and things of that nature. The seed of God, the Word of God grows Christians. But it's an incorruptible seed. It's not Corruptible, he says, by the word of God, but of incorruptible were born, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass, the grass wherewith and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Since the word will abide forever, It just simply makes sense. Those who oppose the Word in their arrogance, those who oppose God in their arrogance, they will fail. Because the Word's not going anywhere. The message doesn't change. The results are going to be the same. So the Word will not go away. And it will never be silenced. We may not want to hear it. We may not want to listen to it. Now there have been a whole lot of people in the world who have opposed God. More than we could name in a few moments tonight but they've done so in great arrogance. I want us to notice one. Are you familiar with the name Voltaire? He was a noted French poet. He bragged more than 200 years ago saying that in another century the Bible would be buried in obscurity and that he would go down in history as the man who destroyed it. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you tonight would have thought the name Voltaire had I not mentioned it. Even though I mentioned the name Voltaire, how many of you are familiar with him? Well, we may have heard his name. He's not widely known or that familiar outside of literary circles, outside of academia. But here's one thing that we know about Voltaire. Voltaire. The Bible, within the last 50 years, has sold 3.9 billion copies. Voltaire has died. He has been buried. And for the most part, he has been lost to history. And he did not go down in that history as the man who destroyed the Bible. Mozart, the well-known musician and composer, was a very religious man in Upon hearing about Voltaire's death, he wrote to his father and he said, The arch-scoundrel Voltaire has finally kicked the bucket. He tried his best to destroy religion and the Bible. That's what he wanted to do. And he was determined to do that. But in his arrogance, he simply has been forgotten to history. What about King Herod? We remember him. He endeavored to please the Jewish ruler, so he had James put to death, and and he bragged about that, and he did that because he hated the Word of God. He didn't want to hear it. The Jews didn't want to hear it, so he tried to appease them. It wasn't long after that that he had, or before that, that he had Peter and John cast into prison, told them, do not preach in the name of Jesus any longer, but what was his end? Do you remember what happened? Was he successful in stopping the spread of the Word of God? Was he successful, much like Voltaire's thinking of putting it to death and being the one remembered for that? No. No, he was punished. We find that in Acts 12, verse 23, it says, "...and immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost." He was being very arrogant. He was making claims of power and giving himself credit for things that God had done, and so God immediately struck him dead. He tried to silence the message of God, but what happened? The very next verse tells us, but the Word of God grew and multiplied. I don't know how many copies throughout history of the Bible have been sold. But if 3.9 billion have been sold in the last 50 years, I can't imagine the number. We remember Jezebel. Names mean things, right? We don't normally name our girls Jezebel. She opposed God and, and the Word of God spoken by, by Elijah all the way to Micaiah. You remember what happened to her? She was determined to destroy the religion of God. In fact, she got her husband Ahab to become an idolater and make it very uh, chic and, and the thing to do in that time to be a worshiper of idols. We remember what happened to her. She was destroyed. She was thrown out of a tower window. Her carcass was eaten by dogs. There was nothing left but her hands. And the word continued to be preached. 2 Kings 9. She had no effect on it whatsoever. The Bible is hated because it displays the arrogance of people who oppose it. It displays who we are. People hate the Bible. The world hates the Bible because it displays... Sin accurately. It doesn't beat around the bush. It doesn't try to make us feel better about ourselves. We read earlier how some men loved darkness as opposed to light, so they didn't want the Word coming in. And when the Word did present Himself in the form of Jesus Christ, John chapter 1, they didn't like it. They tried to hide from it. They didn't want it to shine upon them, but that's the purpose of the gospel, isn't it? To shine a light in dark places to display the truth about our lives. Some may even enjoy listening to the gospel being preached. They may even seek it out. But they do very little in in relation to formatting their lives to fit that. James warned this, James 1, beginning with verse 23. He said, If any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding himself, beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was, but whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So we see John describing the Word of God in terms of a mirror. Why? Because it displays us. It displays us for who we are and for what we are. A mirror shows us exactly what we are. We look in the mirror and we may not like what we see, but how does that change? How can we change that? The person in the mirror has to do something, right? He has to do something or she has to do something. It only happens if we make some kind of a change. We may look in the mirror and think, Boy, I need to lose 10 pounds. If I, if I go away, I turn away from the mirror and I forget what manner of man I was, what I was looking at in the mirror, what am I going to do? Well, I'm not going to lose 10 pounds. That's for certain. If I look into the mirror of the perfect law of liberty and I see where I need to make some changes and I go away and and I forget about what I saw and I'm not making some kind of application, what am I going to do? Well, I'm not going to make changes. Certainly not going to do that. But that's one of the reasons the world hates the Word of God. Because it displays us for what we are to ourselves, right? To ourselves. Self is probably the one who doesn't want to see it more than anyone. That's why the world hates the Word of God. But that's not the only reason. The world hates the Word of God because it does display us who we are. But then our second point is it makes demands upon us. It demands something. It demands change, right? But why? Why is change even necessary? Because from the first couple onward, all the way up until the present today, people, God's greatest creation, have become reprobate in His sight. We've done things that have broken His laws, and we've allowed that to happen. In other words, from Adam until now, we've broken God's laws. We've displeased God. We haven't always done what He's asked us to do. So there needed to be something... To help alleviate that. Well, that's the Word of God. But we don't like it because it makes a demand. People don't like demands, right? Isaiah described even God's people. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to His own way. Isaiah 53, 6. All down through history, nothing's changed. Paul addressed that. Romans three verse ten he said, "As it is written, there is none righteous, no not one. we need to understand that in context. It doesn't mean there aren't good people in the world. we're not born righteous we have to we have to format ourselves to God's plan to become righteous. we can't get there on our own. that's what he's talking about. We can be righteous if we obey the gospel, but we're not we don't come into the world uh sinners we we learn that right, and so we need to be able to make our way back to God. A few verses later, he said, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's why there's none that are righteous, because we've chosen to sin, but we can become justified. That's what Romans is all about. We can become justified, we can become righteous in the sight of God, but we have to do it by His plan. We can't become righteous on our own. That's why, in God's great wisdom, he gave us the plans for man's eventual fall. And where, where are those plans? Where do we find those plans? Well, Paul talked about it to the Ephesians. Speaking of the church, Paul said it was the eternal purpose of God, which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, Ephesians 3, verse 11. Where do we find the information? Well, we have to find it in God's Word. That's where it all began. That's where it all started. He demonstrated that to us. He told us it was His eternal purpose through His Word that He would send Jesus into the world and the church would be established through His sacrifice. But the world hates God's Word because it demands something from us. It demands change. We're reprobate, but we need to stop being that way. So how do we do it? Through repentance. It's Very simple, isn't it? But see, simplicity is one of the reasons that God's Word is hated. People like to rearrange the words, or they like to use semantical arguments, or they like to change this a little bit or change that a little bit and fit something, when in essence all we have to do is repent, have to do what God's asked us to do. People all down through history have gone in the wrong direction by choice, living in sin, serving Satan, wanting to please self instead of God, that's... That's the same story, just a different day, beginning six thousand years ago, with Adam. And that's why Jesus very plainly said again. It demands something. He's very plain in the statements that we find. Luke thirteen three, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And we have to keep in mind he didn't intend just for those who were listening at that point to repent. It's universal, right? How do we know it's universal? There has to be some kind of evidence for that. And Paul made that statement on Mars Hill, Acts 17, verse 30. During the times of this ignorance, God truly overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. See, up until the point Christ came into the world, and that's what He was talking about. He was talking about the one God of heaven and the things necessary to bring about our justification in His sight. Up until that point that Christ became a part of history, uh, there was no way to have sin removed. All they could do was offer a sacrifice and push it ahead for a year. They had to come back again the next year on the Day of Atonement, offer another sacrifice, roll it ahead another year. But see, they couldn't get rid of it until Christ came into the world. had to have a perfect sacrifice. How do we know that's what He's talking about? What? To demonstrate that, the very next verse, he says, because there's a time coming when there's going to be a judgment. He talks about Jesus. He talks about the need for repentance. And why, right? But the problem is, very few people like change. We don't like change. Even small change, we don't like that. I can understand that. You know, we get on a schedule, we kind of like that schedule, we know what we're doing. But people don't like change. The world hates God's word because it displays us exactly as we are. It makes demands on us, and we think it's too harsh. We don't like to be have anything demanded of us, but I think maybe more than anything, the world hates God's word because it clearly declares to us to eternal possibilities for the individual period there are two options very very straightforward very clear about that first of all it makes a declaration concerning our salvation makes a declaration concerning our salvation have you noticed as we study through the bible and we look through each dispensation we may start in genesis and we we go all the way to the exodus And that covers about a period, 2,500 years, I believe, patriarchal period, okay? Uh, Just in about two books. Well, then you have about a 1,500-year period of the Jewish law all the way up until Christ died on the cross. And then now, for the last 2,000 years since Christ was resurrected, We've been in the Christian dispensation. So during the patriarchal law, during the Mosaic law, during the Christian law, have you noticed as you studied the Bible, and I know you have, at no point does God ever ask us for our opinion. At no point does He ask us for our help in determining the proper way to stand justified in His sight. He doesn't care what we believe about it or what we think about it. He simply has declared to us, if you want salvation, this is how you get it. But isn't that good? Isn't it good that we don't have to worry, we don't have to be concerned, we don't have to, to, to ponder whether or not I've done what I need to do? He simply tells us what we need to do, right? And all we have to do is to do that. We have to be obedient. Notice the question Jesus asked, Luke six forty six. He said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? That says a lot in that one statement. What does that indicate in that statement? Well, they're recognizing Him as Lord. With their mouths, they say, well, we believe You're the Son of God. We believe You're the Messiah. We see all the signs and we read the prophecies and we understand that. And He says, well, why don't you do what I say? They don't like change. They didn't want to give up their power. They don't like anyone demanding something from them. They thought He was narrow-minded. They thought that that his way was was too harsh, it was too restrictive. But doesn't that go back to our first point? The display of arrogance on the part of people? Who are we to tell God, well, your plan is too restrictive? It's not inclusive enough. You're not allowing homosexuals and murderers and, and drunkards and the list goes on and on. Shouldn't they have an opportunity to go to heaven? Yes, they should. But the Word of God demands change I don't like it because of that it declares if you want to be saved this is how you do it we had the perfect example of that this morning faith in god repentance confession that he is the son of god immersion in water so sins could be washed away removed and and then paul said romans 6 3 and 4 you come up out of that water you're you're now a new creature isn't that a wonderful feeling that burden removed I don't have to wonder, am I doing the right thing? I know I'm doing the right thing, because that's what he said. He's very clear when he declares the steps of salvation. The world hates that. The world hates that. You know, today's psychologists tell us that we need to suggest to people things and then lead them in such a way that when they come to that understanding, they feel like they got there on their own and no one made a demand of them or told them what to do. Here's the problem with that. One of all, First of all, the problem is found in 2 Peter 1.21. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They were inspired to write down what was revealed to them. Inspiration and revelation. God didn't leave it up to them so they would feel like they came to that on their own conclusion. God didn't have them to preach in such a way that the masses would understand, oh, well, that's a good idea. I'm glad I thought of that. It was always clear and always declared, if you want salvation, this is how you do it. We don't have, That takes a lot of pressure off of us, doesn't it? That helps us immensely. In addition to that, God doesn't listen to psychologists. God's not interested in our opinions. But even more so, what aspect of life is void of demands being placed upon us and expectations as individuals by other people? What aspect of our lives do not hold those things? No aspect. Especially when it comes to our salvation. God doesn't listen to psychologists. We have to understand the Bible is a very demanding book. It's very clear in its declarations of what we need to do in order to access eternal salvation. Notice what Jesus warned, John eight twenty four. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. Our Lord did not intend for us to make a mental ascent that I believe He lived in this world, He's a part of history. I even believe He is the Son of God, deity, He's gone back to heaven. As Acts 1 states, He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, He's ruling over His kingdom. He He is from eternity, he wasn't a created being just because He had a, a beginning time, a beginning point in time, physically speaking. He has always existed in the form of the Word who became Jesus. But there's something else that we have to have to understand. It isn't just that belief. What does it mean to believe? That I believe enough to do what He asked me to. Right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I've asked you to do? The Word of God is hated because it declares the truth about salvation and how we gain it. The world doesn't like that. But it also declares what the sentence for disobedience is and now the world gets really upset. Talk about narrow-minded. Hateful. Not loving. But I want us to notice something. Christ wasn't vague. He wasn't vague in His statements regarding the last day, regarding judgment. John 12, beginning with verse 48, He said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that His commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak." Who was it that told Jesus what to speak? The Father. The Father demanded something from Him. He demanded that He be faithful, that He go to the cross. Did Jesus want to walk to the cross? Was He looking forward to that? We read it in the, in the Gospel account, we read in the, the writer of Hebrews' letter. He didn't want to do that. In fact, He said, is there any other way? but not my will, but thine be done. So if Jesus had demands placed on him by the Father, if he had expectations laid at his door that he ought to behave in a certain way, why do I believe I don't have to? Why does the world believe that no one has to be held to any kind of a standard because there is no standard? There is a standard. And it's God's standard. I don't know of anyone that likes the idea of being judged, right? Right? But that's exactly what's going to happen. Probably one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, people can quote it, they can't tell you where it is, judge not that you be not judged. You know, the thing about that, just a few verses on past that statement, Christ said you have to make a righteous judgment. There's not a one of us that do not make judgments every single day. We make a judgment as to whether uh, any kind of a choice we make. But we have to make righteous judgments judgment no one likes the idea of being judged but that's going to happen and we're going to have a sentence placed upon the ones who have been disobedient we'll have salvation given as a gift to those who have been obedient the writer of hebrews said and as it is appointed unto men to die once but after this the judgment hebrews 9 27 the judgment is certain And do you know that the judgment is one of the more prevalent topics spoken of in the Bible? Again, earlier we read about Paul stating God's demand, Acts 17 verse 30, on why He has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And he goes on to tell why right after that. The very next verse, because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. How do we know that we're going to stand in judgment? Because Christ came out of the grave. Christ came out of the grave and now I know I'll stand in judgment. That's why Solomon said, Ecclesiastes 12 beginning with verse 13, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments for this is the whole of man. God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. If one were asked, How certain is your death? I think that everyone would say, Well, 100%. At some point. You know, I think maybe the better answer is it's just as certain as the judgment When we think of death, we better be thinking about heaven and hell. Why? Because God's Word is very plain about that. And that's one reason the world hates God's Word. Because of its declaration concerning salvation and damnation. There's going to be salvation for those who are obedient. There will be a sentence passed for those who are disobedient. The good news is we do not have to be concerned about how many people in the world obey the gospel as it relates to my personal salvation. Oh, we need to be concerned that people obey the gospel. But can I obey the gospel? Can I be faithful whether anyone else does or not? Well, sure. Absolutely. It doesn't matter if the world hates God's Word because it displays us for who we are, because it makes a demand for us, because it declares something very straightforward and very specific. People don't like that. And we want to share it with others, but, but we want to be saved, and I can do that whether anyone else does it or not. And we don't say that in an unloving way. We want everyone to obey the gospel, but we have to look at ourselves, and we have to say, am I willing to do that? Am I willing to live that way? Do I embrace the Word of God? Do I love it? Whether anyone else does or not. Well, we need to, of course, say yes to that. If you have never obeyed the gospel... We always have an opportunity to do that if we're alive. We need to be able to explain that to people. Peter made the statement for us to always be uh, uh, be able to give an answer for the hope that lives in us. Someone says, well, well, how do you know you're saved? Well, I know I'm saved because I've done what the Word of God says, and it says to do this. Then we talk about faith. Then we talk about repentance. Then we talk about confession that Jesus is the Son of God. Then we talk about baptism. Then we talk about faithful living. Someone says, well... Don't we all make mistakes? Absolutely. God made plans for that as well, called the second law of pardon. Those who have obeyed and have become New Testament Christians, they can repent of sins committed in their lives, confess those publicly or privately, whatever the case may be, depending on the sin, how it was carried out, asking God to forgive him or her and God will do it. And how do I know that? Because that's what the Bible teaches 1 John 1, James chapter 5. And that's what we do. And God loves us for it. If you stand in need to answer this invitation at this moment, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.